0: Grace to you and peace from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so, today we we see that the truths we heard proclaimed at Christmas are true. Jesus has flesh. He's human. He needs to eat. He needs to drink. He can become weakened physically. And as we look at the realities that this flesh imposes upon a person, we can see that the devil wastes no time in using these things, using these needs and these weaknesses of the flesh to his advantage. We see that take place with even Christ himself as the carnal realities of hunger and thirst are some of the devil's favorite tools. When a person is hungry, They're easy to manipulate. When a person is thirsty, they will sell all of their possessions for a single glass of water. If a person is hungry, he will kill his neighbor just to get a single meal. And that is because in our fallen state, the thing that we fear more than anything else is discomfort. Because discomfort is a sign of mortality. And death is the enemy. And with this knowledge at the forefront of our minds, we can become easy to manipulate. The devil's work is done in us, and he's constantly trying to take advantage of any weaknesses that we may have, any vulnerabilities, any places where we're tired, any places where we're tempted, any places where we're an easy target. And Paul warns the Corinthians about this. He says, lest Satan should get an advantage over us, For we are not ignorant of his devices. He's always on the attack. And the fear of death is one of the tools that the devil likes to use the most. He likes to use death as a means to drive people away from Almighty God. He'll show a person suffering or he'll show war or sickness or all sorts of death-filled things... And then he'll use those things to defame and slander God and his goodness. For example, a few years ago, the devil was able to convince millions of Christians that worshiping God in public, that was too dangerous. He was able to convince Christians that they should not gather to hear God's word, that they should not receive the Lord's Supper, and that they should not sing the liturgy or the hymns. Because if they did... Well, they might die or get someone sick. And you see what happens. All of a sudden, Christians were at each other's throats saying, How unloving are you? Or how obstinate are you? Or how foolish are you? And the devil was able to make the ultimate good, the pure expression of the mercy and grace of God that we have in Christ, look like something dangerous and sinful. He was able to divide congregations over the issues, and many congregations still haven't recovered from this. What a major attack upon God's church. Yet this attack happens in smaller ways, too, as we see this same battle play out in smaller settings all the time as the devil tempts us into calling good evil and evil good. For example, a person can become stressed, Right? Their days are they're filled with hard work, they're long, they're tired, and they decide they just need a release from it all. So they go to the store, they buy their bottle of whiskey, and they drink the whole thing down in a few hours. They become drunk, they, they make bad choices, they say stupid things, they hurt other people, but none of that matters. He needed the release. He was tired. He's stressed out. And then he does it again. And then every night... Then he's overconsuming over and over and over again, yet he continues to make the excuse, I'm stressed, I'm tired, I need to have fun to set off all the work I'm doing. I can't be boring. And then the next thing you know, his life is falling apart. As we know from the scriptures, drunkenness is a sin, but having a drink is not evil in and of itself. Sometimes it's a good thing to do, sometimes it's the right thing to do. But being possessed and owned by alcohol to the extent that you believe you need it, well, that's idolatry at best and delusion at worst. The devil, he took an evil thing and tries to convince man that it's good. He does that in many ways in our lives. He even says these evil things are necessary for you to have a good life, and he makes them essential. To the point that man could not imagine functioning without them. And so that can be replaced drunkenness with whatever else. TV, screens, cell phones, entertainment, food, gluttony. And this is the false promise that the devil loves to give us. He says, I have the quick and easy answer that will take away and fix your discomfort. You just need to listen to me. I'll provide the perfect solution to all your little problems in life. And so he offers up some quick diversion, distraction, some little quick pleasure to distract you from all of your troubles. It can be anything, a few hours of screen time, drugs and alcohol, pornography, food, or even something as good and helpful as exercise or self-discipline. And they can all be means that the evil one uses to drive you into deeper sin, these things that happen in the world that the devil warps. So that we we fall into delusion and pride and drift further and further away from our understanding that we need the gospel of Christ. And he tells you that these things are good for you, that they're important, that they're normal, and they're necessary. And so can you see, as we live in this world, that there's, there's spiritual peril built into things. See, the devil's not just tempting us to mess up our lives. He's tempting us so that we can join him and our souls can be damned. He wants God, his Christ, and everything good to become so distasteful and wicked to us that we flee from them, that we hate them, that they're intolerable. If one's not armed with the word, if one doesn't understand and receive the gospel He'll never be able to withstand it. Sobriety of mind, sobriety of judgment and heart, they're necessary. As St. Peter writes, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by their brotherhood throughout the world. And that's what the devil loves to do. Temptation is worked when we're suffering, when we're sorrowful, when we're frightened, when we're hungry, when we feel like we are lacking in something. And when that happens, we're easy to manipulate. You see, the devil is ready to pounce. As he looks at us and he presents an answer, he presents an escape that seems all too convenient. And then we fall. So we must guard our hearts. We must guard our thinking. We must know the scriptures. Because if we don't, the devil will take advantage. He even tries to do this to Jesus. After Jesus is baptized, he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts. He'd begun his ministry... That would end at the cross and the empty tomb god's plan for salvation it was at work and happening in the christ right then and there and the devil sees this and he says i have to stop it jesus is hungry i could use it enter the adversary he comes to use his favorite tools physical struggle and the misuse of scripture and so he walks up to jesus and he says hey if you're the son of god command these stones to become bread essentially he's saying you think you're the christ well look at yourself you're poor you're tired you're hungry in this wilderness if you were really the son of god you would command these stones and you would change your situation you would take care of yourself you wouldn't suffer this indignity you're the son of god after all how dare you be hungry can you see the, maybe the subtlety and craftiness behind this? It begins with hunger and ends with a challenge to defend his divinity. So if Jesus were to say he, he had to prove himself to the devil. And the, Jesus has no tolerance for this. Jesus doesn't need to prove who he is to Satan. And Jesus also knows that the well-being of his incarnate flesh belongs to the caring hands of his father. If Jesus were to make the stones and the bread, he would be accepting the premise of the devil's denial of him. And that would be nothing other than spiritual darkness. It would have been a denial of the providential care that the Father has for him and the office that he's called to as the suffering servant of God. And so what does Jesus do as he answers the tempting word of the devil? Well, he points him to the word of God. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, "God can sustain me with one little word, that bread's not the only hope and comfort that we have in this right life. It's not the immediate pleasure and immediate relief I can get from my sorrow and my pain. The answer to the hunger that Jesus was feeling in his body is faith in the love and gracious care of his father, not the abuse of his divine office. And so we see here that Jesus does what, what Israel, of course, failed to do. We read about the Old Testament, and they were challenged with hunger and thirst in their time of testing in the wilderness, and they immediately, what do they do? They begin to doubt and to grumble in the face of God. They say, What? Did God bring us out of Egypt to die of hunger and thirst? Better that we were back in Egypt, away from the Lord. We had meat in our pots. We had water to drink. But even in the face of this, what does God do? But show his power to provide. He sends manna from heaven and water from the rock, and yet Israel still grumbles against the food that they're given by God's gracious hand because the devil used their hunger undo them. To sow seeds of doubt and contention and to cause them to hate God and his servant Moses. And as I mentioned above, that's the devil's desire. It's to prey on our weaknesses. That Christ, even in his physical weakness, shows perfect faith and trust in his Father. And this sort of trust is lived out. When we trust in the promise that God is gracious and generous, we also look to him in faith knowing that we will, go, we will go without or will not go without our basic needs being met. And if we believed this, we would be generous and kind, right? We would offer up all the gifts that God has given to us to the needs of our neighbor, the needs of our church, the needs of the people around us. We'd be willing to devote what we have to the service of God's people, knowing that we cannot give more than what God has already given. If I really trusted that God would provide for tomorrow what I need for tomorrow, I would be generous with what I have today. Yet what do we do often? As our lives are lived, are we the very uh, picture of self-denial and generosity every day? No, more often than not, we're filled with a desire to feed our self-interest as we pour our effort and our time and energy to do what is pleasing and appealing in our own eyes. Yet Jesus is not consumed with his self-interest. Jesus is devoted to the will of his Father, and the will of his Father is to show mercy. And so Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that i should lose nothing of all that's given to me but raise it up on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day and so what does jesus come to do to suffer to feel hunger to be thirsty And he's not going to deny the perfect will of his father for something as simple as bread. And so he turns the devil's words against him and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That old evil foe, though, he's wily, he's persistent. He tries to tempt again. Once again, he questions the identity of Jesus. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, If you're the son of God throw yourself down for it's written he will command his angels concerning you and on your hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone he misquotes the scriptures here and what's he doing with it he's trying to get jesus to doubt his father's goodness it's like saying hey your father put you down here to suffer you but you know there's another way the whole point is that they worship you and be saved right well what better way to receive their worship, to receive the worship of these little people, than to descend from the temple carried by angels? They'd have no choice but to fall down before you, O oh Jesus. And then you'll, you'll not have to do all this, this suffering stuff, that, that cross, that death, that tomb. Oh, it's so, so icky, so painful. Oh, just pure adoration. Just receive it. See how crafty that is? It's all about glory, acceptance of the masses, and an easy way to the kingdom. And that, that really is the devil's lie. He, he, he says, oh, I got the quick and easy answer for your problems, just do this. And usually the answer seems to be appealing at the moment, but is destructive in the long run. And so it involves putting God to the test. And so I think people do this sort of thing um, when, they, when they think about baptism or think about baptizing their children. To baptize your children is good. good. To baptize your babies is good. But often we see parents long delay the baptism of their children. Sometimes they're way later in life and they say, well, well, I didn't really have to do it, so I didn't do it. Or they'll do it on the other end. They'll baptize their children and then they'll say, my child has the Holy Spirit around, I really don't need to do anything. Going to church with my small children, that's hard. That's too much work. It's not really worth it for me to go through that stress. And so they baptize their children, but they don't feed them with the faith that's given through the word of God. And sometimes we do that to ourselves, too. They say, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I don't need to go to church to be that, to believe. And so what do they do? They, 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 they count themselves in, but then they never attend to the word. They never attend to hearing and receiving the gospel they never grow and armor themselves in the faith that they claim to have. But this is like running into battle with no weapons, no training, no armor. And yet people do it all the time. And why is it? That's because they're content to say, Well, I have something, without knowing what that something is. We do this regularly, even when we feel temptation. Well, I might as well just do it. It's not going to hurt me in the long run. I'll ask for forgiveness later. To this, Jesus answers, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, when Jesus is tempted to have the easy, he rather trusts that God's plan was right and that his sorrowful suffering and death, that would bear the fruit that God intended. He did not need to test God, and he did not need to take the easy way. He simply submitted himself to the will of his Father. That's the question we ask ourselves all the time. Hey, what's the will of my Father? What's God's will? Well, it's God's desire that we don't take the easy in this life. It's God's desire, sometimes, that we struggle and suffer and maintain our faith it's God's desire that we are tempted at times and in that temptation our faith is strengthened it's God's desire that we be saved that we repent of our sins that we come out of darkness and that we see the futility of our minds and the darkness of our hearts That's what the scriptures teach. It says, This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so it may be that the will of God is for us to suffer for a time so that our faith might be strengthened and that we would draw further into repentance. Sometimes the faithful thing isn't the easy thing. Sometimes the faithful thing entails sacrifice. Sometimes the faithful thing entails being rejected by men. And yet, in the end, the faithful thing is also what causes us to rejoice in eternal life. It's like what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, That's the easy, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. And so Jesus says, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan pulls out his final weapon in doing so. He really reveals his true colors. As Jesus didn't have to guess, he he showed Jesus all the earthly wealth and power in the world, and he says, If you but bow down and worship me, I'll give it all to you. What an empty promise coming from an empty promiser. He shows himself to be a liar. It may look like the devil can give the kingdoms of the world, he can't. This world belongs to God. And the fact that the devil influences the world's leaders and yeah and and tries to drive the world in all sorts of crazy directions sometimes he holds the minds of the world captive The devil has no right to anything and he cannot make good on this promise and so jesus answers he says be gone satan for it's written you shall worship the lord your god and him only you shall serve once again jesus quotes the scriptures and this is the perfect response. First of all, he commands Satan to be gone. He speaks that of at his own authority. He reminds Satan who holds the lordship here. It's Jesus. He can command Satan out of his presence any time and any place. The response against the devil is a reminder that as Satan attempts to have lordship over you, God is the Lord of creation. God is the Creator and the Redeemer. And Jesus is your God. He is the one who has all authority over heaven and earth. Jesus, God in the flesh, is the one who has been handed the authority. And he wields his almighty power for the good of his people. How does Jesus use his almighty power and authority? He forgives sinners. That is really where the battle is. It's in the forgiveness of sins. It's all about what Christ has done. When we battle against the evil one, it's not a battle that can be run with your personal resolve, your willpower, your self-discipline, your own winsome intelligence, or anything like that. These things are important. You should arm yourself with the scriptures. You should discipline your body. You should know your weaknesses. They're necessary, but they do not bring victory. Because at the end of the day, every day, we will come in weary from the battle, and we will see the ways in which we have lost. We may have avoided some of the shipwrecks, some of the pitfalls. We may have seen the evils that would cause us to deny our faith and thumb our noses to God. But we will still have failed. I will have failed to pay attention to every member of this church in the way that I should as your pastor. I will have failed at the end of the day to be as kind and generous to my wife and children as I should have been. I will have failed to instruct and correct in the ways that I should. As we think about that, And we realize that as our days are filled with little moments of weakness that the devil capitalizes on with great efficiency, there is only one thing left to do. That's trust in Jesus. Can the evil that we have committed, and whatever it is, not be confessed to our Lord? Of course, the answer, it can be. And we can trust in the one who overcomes it. We are outwitted. We are outmatched. We are outplayed every single day. We have nothing left in us other than the trust in the one who isn't. As we think about the serpent with Adam and Eve, he has not failed to cause any one of these little ones to sin each and every day. He did not fail with our parents, Adam and Eve. He did not fail in causing us to daily stumble and fall. And the fact is, we are not living like animals. We're not completely ruined in ourselves. And the church of God exists by the grace of God. And yet, in the midst of all of it, there is only one who has stood firm in the face of the devil's lies. There is only one who is perfectly trusted in the will of his God. There is only one who wasn't deceived, and it is Jesus. And that one forgives our sins. He forgives those who do not stand sinless in the face of temptation. He forgives the sins of those who fail to stand firm against the assaults of the devil in our sinful flesh and he defeats the devil out there in the wilderness. Just as Eve was promised that her offspring would crush the serpent's head, the serpent crusher has done his work. As he is weak in the flesh and hungry, he stands victorious. He is tempted, and he is without sin, as we read in our epistle lesson today. And even as he stands without sin, he suffers in every way that we suffer. He struggles in every way we struggle. And though there is no sin in him that caused him to bear the result of our sins on his flesh, he gladly goes to it. He faithfully and joyfully goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. He bears our sins. He covers us in his righteousness. The unrighteous becomes righteous in Jesus. And now as our sinful nature works its evil and the devil strives to tempt us, we can look to the one who has overcome our enemy and we can say, yeah, I'm weak. Yet the one who is strong has covered me in his work. Yes, I fall short. But he who has overcome you overcomes you for my sake. And he has forgiven me all of my sins. And as we daily struggle with temptations to sin, we are called to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. And we stand firm by fleeing from temptation to the gospel. We discipline our flesh in such a way that we are not continually isolated from where the gospel is available, but we go to where we know the gospel is proclaimed. We find our fellow Christians, we find God's church. We dwell in the midst of the promise of forgiveness. So that in all of our temptations, we know where Jesus can be found, and it's in his promises. In Christ, our weakness becomes our strength because he forgives. And once again, the Christian should never isolate themselves. A Christian stands only by the grace of Christ. We stand where the gospel is. We flee to God's word of absolution. He says, I forgive you all of your sins in the name of Jesus. We rest in God's means of grace. We daily return to our baptism because that's where God has promised to work faith. And he continues to work repentance as we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We're washed not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. That's because Jesus. We Christians flee. We flee to the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink the forgiveness of sins. And in these things, Jesus works out his victory over Satan. That's what happens in church. That's what happens when two or more gather in his name. And in these things, Jesus continually works out his victory over Satan. The serpent crusher crushes the serpent again and again and again. Weak sinners are blessed as we stand before him who grants us the fruits of his victory. And when that happens, the devil can only flee. His power is stripped from him as the devil becomes a raging but defeated foe. And Christ, victorious, stands firmly and victorious over the field of battle. He will hold you and he will guard you. In his promises. If you are overwhelmed, if you feel weak, if you are tempted, if you are hurt by sin, well, first join the party. But then come to the Lord's Supper. Confess your sins with the people of God. Pray, Lord, have mercy with the church. And in this, the Lord will supply you with more than you will ever need to stand firm against the evil one. Let us pray. Father of all mercies, we know that we are weak. And left alone, we can only fail. Have mercy on us according to your Son and bless us with the fruits of his victory over Satan. Forgive our sins and deliver us from temptation. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. Go now in Christ's peace. Amen. We rise.